Hello, Regeneration. It's, uh, it's amazing to be back with you uh, for another Sunday where we're still celebrating this time of Lent, uh, remembering the sacrifice Jesus made for us as we head into this time of Easter. Before we open our Bibles today and, and read God's word, let's, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this day. Thank you for the many blessings you have given us, Lord. Lord, as we read your words, we ask for your spirit to move in us, to soften our hearts so that we can hear truth. Lord, we thank you for saving us, for giving us a path, for giving us the truth that we need to hear, Lord. Lord, we ask that we remember that we need you, because we do need you, Father. Lord, thank you for this time you've given us, for volunteers, for technology and opportunities to continue fellowship at a distance. Lord, I ask that this time of Lent and this time in your word be reflection for us, time to spend with you and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Last week, I spent the sermon talking about Simon of Cyrene and how he was a representative for all of us and how we walked Jesus to the cross. And then he bore that suffering that we should have. And I asked you to see yourself in Simon. Now, I don't know about you, but I see myself in a lot of the characters and people in the Bible. The unflattering truth is, more often than not, I see myself in, in some of the, the worst characters in the Bible. I want to see more of myself in Jesus when I read about him, and with all of my heart, I want to be more like him. But more often than not, I see myself in the characters of the Bible that are against Jesus. Today, we're going to examine the soldiers that participated in the crucifixion. We're going to take a step backwards in time a little bit from Simon and Cyrene, and then we're going to jump ahead. So please open your Bibles to Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31. Before we read Matthew here, I want to talk about how Matthew approaches the crucifixion. In John, the crucifixion is really focused from a very God-centered point of view. Matthew approaches the, the crucifixion from a very different viewpoint. Matthew describes the, the crucifixion not from the standpoint of the goodness of God, but as a standpoint of the wickedness of men. And the focus of Matthew is on how evil men are and how much the death of Jesus Christ demonstrates the wickedness of the human heart. And I would say the death of Jesus Christ is, on the one hand, the single greatest revelation of the love and grace of God. On the other hand, it is the single greatest revelation and supreme revelation of the defilement and wickedness of the human heart. So you have two actually opposite truths happening and, and being monumentally revealed in, in a singular event. And, and this is what... what, what Peter points to in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 when he's preaching at Pentecost he says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men 
And as we look then at Matthew's gospel, we will see not so much the crucifixion from the side of God's grace and love as we see it from the side of man's defilement and wickedness. And it's wickedness unmatched. And if ever there was a place where the prophecy in the statement of Jeremiah 17.9 is seen where he said, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If ever there was a place where that's seen, it's here at this place. This is the single greatest proof of the truth of that statement. So let's jump into Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And led him away to crucify him. This is a hard passage to read. In the run up to this passage, Jesus has already been through a lot. He's been betrayed, he's been beaten by the Jews, he's faced the scourge, a torture device of several whips with bits of metal and glass and bone at the ends that could literally tear flesh from a person's back. So Jesus is here, bloodied, broken, beaten, and now he has to face even more mockery. These soldiers stay with Jesus throughout the crucifixion, and they find many opportunities to mock him. I'm reminded so much of ourselves, how many of us take our salvation for granted, that we continue to find ways, despite all that Jesus has done for us, to mock him. Despite what he endured on our behalf, what he endured that we should have, we still find ways to mock him in our sin and in our lawlessness. But as I said in my last sermon, these are the final steps of Jesus on his way to complete God's plan for salvation. So it's not left to random that these soldiers are here. And it's not left to chance what they do, nor is it left to chance how Jesus responds to them. In Luke 23, verses 33 through 34, it is recorded what happens when they get to Golgotha. Now, this is after they've met Simon of Cyrene, and he's walked them up the hill. So this is Luke 23, 33 through 34. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Man, the mercy of Jesus towards people who rejected him and his soldiers that crucified him. His response to these people who have tortured him, beaten him, mocked him, is to say, Father, forgive them. Even as they sit down to gamble with the little possessions that he has and to watch what's about to happen to him. Jesus' concern was for their forgiveness, not his own escape. Not an end to his suffering, but an end to their suffering. That's beyond powerful for me. As I said in my last sermon, during his most excruciating suffering, Jesus was still focused on the unsaved, the unrepentant sinners who continued their jeering. All Jesus wanted 
wasn't an end to his suffering, but it was for their forgiveness. I want to take a step back and talk about the soldiers casting lots. We know that casting lots here for clothing is a direct reference to David's Psalm 22, verse 18. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they divide up my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David here is literally referring to the contempt that his enemies had for him. He means so little to them that they're just going to gamble for his clothing. And it's the same here in Matthew. The jeering soldiers care so little for Jesus that they gamble for his clothing. Now, historically, casting lots was an impartial way to gamble. It's essentially like a coin flip. So these soldiers care so little for Jesus that they are flipping coins for his clothes. I want to compare that to the woman in Mark 5, 27 through 29. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Now, paraphrasing here, a woman has been plagued by a, a, an illness for years and seeing Jesus in the crowd, she runs up to him, simply touching his clothing, believing that it will heal her. And it does. But it's, it's not his clothing that heals, right? Jesus himself tells her that it's her faith that heals her. But here in Matthew, we have these same clothes that a woman desperately reached out for being split up by a coin toss. Do you want to be the woman who desperately reaches out to Jesus? Or do you want to be the soldiers who care so little for Jesus that they gamble with his clothing, further stripping of his dignity? I don't know about you, but I want to be the woman. I want to reach out to Jesus at every opportunity. I don't want to be careless. I don't want to be mindless, mocking, or lawless with what he has done for me. And it's right in front of the soldiers' eyes, and they don't even care. But the Lord's still at work. Matthew continues with his crucifixion. First, we meet Simon, and they walk Jesus to Golgotha. And finally, the soldiers offer Jesus a drink. Matthew 27, verses 33 through 34. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. I want to explain something that's very important here. They offer him wine, but it's mixed with gall. Gall simply means bitter. But Mark identifies this as myrrh. Myrrh is a narcotic. It's essentially used as a painkiller. So here we have Jesus finally offered a reprieve of his suffering from the soldiers, and he rejects it. He wouldn't drink it. He himself said, shall I not drink the cup my father gives me? So he's not going to drink the soldier's cup. He's not going to drink this. He was not going to have any of his senses dulled. He was going to the cross to endure the full pain of everything. But not just that. Jesus knows he can't have his senses dulled because there's still work. It's not done. There's still work that needs to be done. There's still people that need to be saved. See, Jesus knows that his death is still an opportunity. 
We see this with his interaction with the thieves on the cross with him. But Jesus knows that his ministry goes beyond each singular interaction, that that is the power of the cross. It continues to save people, not just the people Jesus speaks directly to, but those that hear the story, that bear witness from the sidelines, that heard the story from somebody else, that saw and believed. And the soldiers and their centurion leader were there for the entire of Jesus' final ministry before his resurrection. On the cross before these soldiers and the centurion, Jesus continues his ministry. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine being a soldier here and witnessing this? Jesus has withstood everything they've thrown at him, every humiliation, every indignity, every torment. He's withstood it, and he uses it. And he even uses his cross to minister to someone else who's dying, offering them salvation. I think there are only two responses people have to witnessing the events at the cross whether in person or as we do through scripture, there is either being convinced or there is rejecting. Those are the only two options. And we see how Jesus utilizes these soldiers and what they are witnessing in the following verse in Matthew. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was righteous. Matthew tells this, Mark tells this. His testimony is is very unlikely. You need to know a little bit about a centurion. A Roman centurion was a commander of a hundred men. A hundred men were called a century, hence their commander is a centurion. Essentially, he would have been an officer, similar to a captain in today's army. Not a general, but a small unit commander. Now, this is somebody who's seen a lot. He's witnessed many things. Now, if somebody has seen a lot and he's witnessed many things, this statement that he makes can't be flippant. So this particular officer was guarding Jesus and obviously in charge of the soldiers who were responsible for this prisoner. He'd heard all the accusations. He'd heard everything that the leaders of Israel sent against Jesus, and he heard the verdict of innocent repeated at least six times. He saw Jesus act like no prisoner he'd ever seen. He's seen a lot of prisoners. He sees a man acting completely innocent, his innocence verified time after time after time, and yet he never retaliates. He never cries out. He never demands some kind of justice that he's not getting. He suffers with grace and majesty through unjust trials, and he takes all their mockery and all their abuse silently, never protesting. And even though his soldiers spit on him and taunt him and mistreat him, he never curses them and he never threatens them. The centurion had to be amazed at how differently he reacted to what was going on than every other prisoner they had ever, that he had ever seen. 
There's no category for someone to behave like this. An innocent man taken all the way to the cross, and then they're the ones, the soldiers, who nailed him to their cross. But all the while, the things he was experiencing, the soldier, were ruminating in his mind. He heard Jesus pray for his killer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saw the noble way he suffered. He heard him cry out to his father. They heard him promise paradise to the repentant thief who had been cursing him. And then... The centurion and his soldiers experienced the impossible when Jesus died. Matthew 27, 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the, his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw this earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion and his soldiers are now experiencing midnight at noon, three hours of pitch blackness, and then an earthquake and split rocks. And the centurion can no longer ignore reality. And the final proof, as if the darkness and the earthquake wasn't enough, the final proof, just before he died, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that is something the, the, the centurion would never have seen. People who died of crucifixion had oxygen deprivation to their brains. and They were long incoherent before they actually died. They wouldn't be able to muster up enough breath to, to breathe let alone shout out at the top of their voice. And this man took death by his own will and made it his servant. And Mark writes, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed this last. He said, truly this was the Son of God. And where did he pick that phrase up? John 19.7 said, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The centurion heard the accusation of the Jews, and the centurion concluded that he was the son of God. Matthew notes that the earthquake coming at the exact moment along with the cry of Jesus pushed them over the edge into belief. When they, the soldiers, not just the centurion, but the soldiers as well, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. And that little expression, feared greatly, is exactly the same words as were used on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John feared greatly the transfigured Christ when they saw him in his glory. And this is the, the kind of fear that is, tip, that is a typical reaction uh, of people who realize the truth of who Jesus is. It dawned on them that they had crucified the Son of God. Luke tells us that centurion said, certainly this man was righteous. Righteous. It was not just a statement about innocent. It was a statement about positive righteousness that caused him, along with the other soldiers, to begin praising God and standing in awe. They'd come to an honest... In, an awareness of the truth of God, the true Son of God as the righteous one. These are the first converts of Christ, moments after his crucifixion, coming to faith precisely at the very time he died. As I mentioned in my sermon last week, the Lord used his suffering and the crucifixion not just as an act of salvation for future generations, but he used each and every single last moment that he had to still reach out to the lost. 
Every interaction Jesus had with the soldiers in the centurion was being used by him to lay the groundwork of them coming to know him, to know truly what it was to believe and have faith, to say this man was the son of God. I mentioned earlier that more often than not, I see myself in the people in the Bible that stand in opposition to Jesus. And it's true. I see myself when they mock Jesus. But I thank God that I see myself when they came before Jesus in awe and came to know the truth. I am the Roman soldier who crucified Jesus. I am the one responsible for his death. I might as well have driven the nails through his hands after beating him. Jesus used these soldiers to show me, to show us everything that I do to mock him. But thankfully, I'm like these soldiers. I've come to believe. I've come to this cross and I've said, truly, this man was the son of God. There really are only two options when it comes to seeing the final work of the cross. Conviction or rejection. As we think about the responses that happened that day at Calvary, we need to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves what our response to the cross is. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that because of him, I'm free. Lord, I ask that we always be like the Roman soldiers at the end of their time with Christ, not at the beginning. We ask that you give us strength in our weakness, that we hold fast to our conviction and don't become just another mocking lawless person. Lord, thank you for the grace that when we do fall short, we can still turn to the cross. Lord, I ask that this message be written on our hearts. I ask that the awe with which the centurion spoke be the awe that we look at you every day. Lord, thank you for this time of Lent to be spent in reflection of Jesus' final steps to the cross. Thank you for using Jesus' final steps to draw the lost closer to you. Lord, I ask that we draw closer to you every day. That we reach out to you like the woman with Jesus' clothes. Lord, thank you for your power and grace to save all of us, even when we don't deserve it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I'm going to move on to communion now, so if you have your elements with you, please get them, or because this is recorded, feel free to pause, and I'll still be here waiting for you when you get back. But as we take this, we start with the, the bread to represent his broken body. I want you to take a moment to reflect on just how broken that body actually was and everything that Jesus went through and how he still used that. How he still used that to draw us to him, to draw the soldiers to him. So we take this in remembrance of his body broken. take the fruit of the vine in remembrance of his blood spilled. 
I want you to remember how precious that blood actually was. I want you to remember that precious blood was spilled for you. I want you to remember that that blood was spilled while Jesus was being mocked. And I want you to remember to not be the person that mocks Jesus. To take this in remembrance. Don't take it mocking. 